they were amateurs in a professional game and that was always their get out but that isn't the case today they're they're professional people they train they get very well paid and they shouldn't be making such uh, mistakes and now they're they use it they're, they give the referees another excuse now with the var to make silly decisions and uh, the the var is actually t- taking the game backwards well, let's go back yeah. to 1967 because this is the thread. And we had two great uh, cup finals that year, one involving Queen's Park Rangers being the first third division club to win the League Cup. And in the FA Cup, it was a Tottenham versus Chelsea affair, wasn't it? Or certainly the semi-final was. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a, you're right. 67 was... Um... That was a final that nearly never happened, um, Chelsea and Tottenham, because Chelsea there was a big dispute over cup final tickets, and there would have that that was Chelsea. I mean, I was at the game. I was at the game with my brother, and I was only fifteen mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> at that time. I was just signed apprentice, and um, I, I just I, well, I was about a year into my apprenticeship, and uh, I didn't find out till later on that, that the Chelsea players were in a hotel in Bournemouth till about four o'clock in the morning on that Saturday morning, the FA Cup final, and they weren't playing. Yeah. Uh, and I might have actually made my debut as a 15-year-old because that's how many players they had. Uh, they was been so short of players that me and my brother might have had to play. So, they, you know, because um, they refused to play because in those days, you know, it always makes me laugh when you see players in them days after they've got through the semi-final, they're all jumping and singing and dancing and all that. That I wasn't so much getting to Wembley. It was because it was a big payday. It was a, we used to they used to get a hundred tickets, compliment uh, well hundred tickets to buy, and they get me in one hand and they go out to the other hand to the to either Stan Flashman or whoever else wanted to buy them. So that was that was a big payday for footballers in them days and. That was why Chelsea held out that morning and they weren't going to play. And, and then at the, at the 13th hour, they said, sort of give them the tickets. So I don't know where they got the tickets from. But uh, that, that would have been quite some final had they refused to play. And when I said that, it was a little bit of a joviality because in the semi-final at Villa Park, I believe another game that you was at, Leeds United had two goals disallowed and the second goal by Peter Lorimer for uh, encroachment from a Chelsea player. And then almost after that, the whistle blew and Chelsea were at Wembley. But that day at Villa Park was quite bizarre in 1967 as well, wasn't it? Well, I remember that for two reasons. One, I was, I was in line with Peter Lorimer when he smashed that ball in the last kick of the game. And I remember... I remember it hitting the net and coming back out. And as it was coming back out, Peter Bonetti started to dive. Yeah. It, he hit it that hard. I've never seen a ball hit so hard. And uh, and it was also a time when um, they brought in the rule that, uh, you know, protecting goalkeepers. And, uh, and my, one of my great friends, Johnny Boyle, was playing. And um, I remember he, he was running through on, onto a through ball and, Gary's break come out and as he came through I remember going in after the round to see after the game and John, Johnny Ball come out with six stub marks yeah. on the right side of his face where Gary's break had you know put his boot into his face so that was the way Leeds handled that kind of stuff 
once again, you know, uh, referees making of oh, the FA making terrible mistakes. You know, they could have took. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, if 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 he'd have got him in the eye, he could have took his eye out. But um, that was the way Leeds played the game. But that was they, they, yeah, yeah, the yeah, the, the Gary Sprague. So it was quite fitting, really, that um, when when they actually got to the final against us on in in nineteen seventy, that Gary kindly let one under his body one uh, for a, a shot from Peter Houseman that I think my my grandmother was safe. Yeah. It was like that, wasn't it, at times, Gary Sprague? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He turned his manager a whiter shade of pale on a few occasions, <laughs> which leads us to our first record today, Procol Harum's classic and number one. And was number one on your 16th birthday, by the way. Do you know what Procol Harum means? No, I don't. I don't. I've never, it's one of those things that you've got me out, you've caught me out on. It's one of those things that I, I would usually look up. I've got you back for uh, Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Far yeah. from these things, it means Procol Harum. Procol Harum is, is Latin for far from these things. So what's the story behind this wonderful song that that was a little bit of truth, like all songs will do, a little bit of truth, and a little bit like with the line about the miller telling the tale, that was a, 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 a figment of imagination, but put together in a concise way that confused everybody. So what's the story behind that track? Well, I, I just I just think it was, uh, like most of the songs that we, we pick out or I pick out, it's... Yeah. Um, it it was a sign of the, it was a sign of the times. It was just so different from any other songs that were made. I mean, that was a time of the um, you know the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, the Searchers, and you know um, the Hollies, whoever. Then then Graham Nash went, the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. So this was one right out the blue, wasn't it? it was a, this was one pull right out the top drawer. And uh, it was as classy a song as ever been made. And I, I think that, you know, when I look through the, the music of those days, it's got to be one of the greatest songs recorded. Uh, you know, Skip a Life and Dangle. And, you know, it's a, it's a kind of song I, I, I think I might have, been, have written, you know, but I just, as we spoke about before, just didn't have the ability to put the music to it. And I'm guessing that you and the rest of your Chelsea boys wouldn't have minded being in that place that, that the the songwriter was writing about for the whiter shade of pale. It looked quite a bit of a party that was going on with ceilings being removed and everything else. And I think quite a bit of alcohol was taken and probably other things as well. Well, they might have got a game in our team then, mightn't they? Yeah. Uh, our Chelsea team there. Yeah, I mean, those were the days. Those were the, da- those were the days when... Uh... Uh, that was all all happening at that yeah. time. I remember the, the Elton John. I've read the Elton John book a couple of times, and some of the stories in there, what they were getting up to, and the John Lennon days, and that you know everything everything went in those days. It was a fan, fantastic days. Of uh, I'm not saying that I'm I'm one for drugs and all that, but you know marijuana never really killed anybody. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, but no, it's, it was, uh, I mean, uh, without without the drugs, there they wouldn't have been songs like that, would there? You know, there would have been, you know, uh, the, 
I played a song the other day, A Day in the Life by uh, the Beatles, and it, it's a fantastic song. It's And uh, the LSD, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and stuff like that, you know, it's, it's all about uh, smoking weed or whatever. There's, there's nothing right. In today's society, I mean, that is nothing today with what goes on. Uh, in fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. But in those days, Al, you're right. I mean, we've, we've come off the back of... of pretty much really the Second World War, haven't we? And then the 50s. We've entered that new decade of the 60s. And by the time 66, 67, and England obviously won the World Cup and, and all the rest of it, it was the swinging 60s. And the epicentre, I'm guessing, was the King's Road and Chelsea. Well, I, I think it's funny you should mention England winning the World Cup because in in, in those days in the King's Road, I don't think anybody realised they did. There was so much going on. It was a, it was an incredible time, just an incredible. I I remember going down there, just walking down there on a, a lovely summer's evening, about half past five, six o'clock, and you know you'd see see him come along, ringing the bells, Harry Krishna, and all this, and then they had the you know the, all the riots and mods and the rockers and all this, you know, not that I was one for that, but. Um, you know, we'll go into another song in a minute called San Francisco. It's um, you know, the Flower Power. It, it was it. They were the they were the most incredible. It was like I watched a, I've watched a couple of movies recently <clears throat> about <clears throat> a, a kid with a fairy tale fairy tale book, and he, he he goes he lives his life like a fairy tale, and that's what it was in them days. It was like a it was like a fairy tale. You couldn't believe what was going on around you, and as a young Young fifteen, six-year-old, you know, I, I suppose, you know, I although I became a footballer, I would just love to have been in their world, and uh, if I would have been born a musician instead, I mean, I, I would have, you know, plus the fact you've got your sell-by date, you know, I mean, when you look at the Rolling Stones today and they're still doing concerts, uh, he's, I mean, he's hundred and forty-five, Mick Jagger. And he's still doing concerts, so you know it, it was a the, the music. Music is you know that we've said in all our shows that it's it's just without without music there would be no be no movies. There'd be nothing. Would there be no life? And also without football there wouldn't be because we've always maintained this music and football go hand in glove, and that's very evident in your autobiography, The Working Man's Ballet. Alan Hudson confusing Chelsea fans since 1974. Is that a correct statement? Um, well, the working man, the working man. I mean, um, the working man ballets are um, just a just an incredible title, isn't it? It's. I think that's what I remember when Jeff Powell, my friend on the Daily Mail, he's a top writer and, and one of the top in the world. It's just a fantastic writer, and when when he saw the title, he was blown away by it, and. Uh, that was what my manager called it, and that's yep. that's the way he saw it. And he, Tony, Tony wasn't like me. I mean, I I could, you know, I wanted to be, you know, one of these, you know, people. Um, I'm, I'm just a great m- music lover. <clears throat> but Tony, Tony, Tony did love his Tony did love his music, but he was on a different age, uh, and that's how we see the game played. You know, we see the game played is like it's Swan Lake. He sees Swan Lake as a football match. He used to sit and watch football and think and and, and put music to it. It yeah. was just and and that was and the, the 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 photograph I have of me and George Best, you know, if you put that to music, it's in you know, clashing for the ball to music. It, it just about sums a title up. 
we're going to go back to confusion in a moment. But when you went to America and played for Seattle Sounders, you must have visited San Francisco and that Scott McKenzie song that does remind you of the Harry Krishnas and the Flower Power. What was it like when you actually went to San Francisco and through that song of Scott McKenzie's, did you have an idea of what San Francisco was going to be and did it differ from when you actually landed there? To tell you the truth, I, I was unfortunate and we never really spent too much time. We, we used, you know, it was like a blur. It yeah. was, you know, we, it was not like going on holiday. You you go into these places and play like New York. I love, just adored New York and could, you know, it was one place I'd love to live. And, uh, you know, you go there and you just be blown away by uh, at three, four o'clock in the morning, the piano bars, you know, and you picture Billy Joe, Joe L walking in and playing the piano or Dalton could, you know, him being a, a, a concert pianist as well. You know, the, these American bars are just leaving them light years behind. <clears throat> but I never really, I've been over the, the you know, the, the bridge there and uh, been in San Francisco, but I've never really, it's like New Orleans. I'd love to spend time in New Orleans. I've never really been fortunate. They never had a football team at that time, so I never got there. But um, no, I mean the United States of America. These these towns, cities, and they're like towns, aren't they? You know, yeah. and uh, it's you know it it the music, New Orleans, and everything else. You can just imagine it's a little bit different going to Fulham or, or Putney or something like that, or or to Stoke on Trent in New Orleans. It's just it, it just brings a new meaning to music. The confusion comes from confusing Chelsea fans because lots of Chelsea fans have always believed that you're a Chelsea boy and when they hear you or see you on the TV or the radio, and a, well, why aren't they talking up Chelsea? Why aren't he? Oddie's a Chelsea. No, Alan Hudson has never been a Chelsea fan. In fact, Stamford Bridge is probably one of the very few football grounds that you haven't paid to get into to watch the players at any time <laughs> of your career. The first team that you did go to, because your dad um, was a mad Fulham fan, you were living in Chelsea, but it was Fulham, wasn't he? And then you even, could, well, you didn't know this because while um, while you were or I was going away to Stratford last Saturday, I was on your Twitter account and I put up the picture of Stan Bowles and you and I put Stan and a QPR fan and that really threw and confused the Fulham supporters as well. So let's have a little bit of light on the confusion. Well, I don't, I um. I, I'm a great believer. I, I fall out with people and I, I don't, I, I really don't understand. Uh, I was brought up in a time when people would go to, you know, the, uh, my elders would go to Chelsea, Stamford Bridge one week and go to Craven Cottage the next and all the talk in the cafes on Monday when I was, I was only tiny, you know, would be of them, you know, both the local teams and that's the way I was brought up. And, uh, I became a Fulham supporter because my father was born in Fulham, and he he didn't he, he didn't for a minute ever encourage me to be a he, he just said go and enjoy what you want to enjoy, and I that's why I, I say to parents why why do you why do you brainwash your kids into being a, a supporter? Leave them alone, let them make their own choice up of of anything in life, um, and let them go where they want. And I I ended up me and my little friend uh, as luck would have it. Uh, little Billy Boyce was the best cricketer and the best sprinter and I was the best footballer and the best long distance runner and he was a Jamaican and I loved my cricket and 
And I used to say to him, we're very fortunate, Bill, that we don't have to buy a scarf. And he would say, well, why is that? I said, well, we're black and white, aren't we? I said, we don't need a scarf. And he would laugh. You know, he said, you're, you're, you're crackers, you know. But, that, but that's the way we were. We, we were the only black and white people in the ground, you know, two friends. And that's why I don't understand this racial thing. I, and I never will. I'll never get to the bottom of it. But I, um, I kind of fell in love with Fulham. I love I love the I love the side of I suppose that's why I become a player because they had so many bad players. I thought, well if I can't make it in this game, I can't make it anywhere because they were they were hopeless. You know. And I, what I loved about Fulham and our support the supporters of that time, we never expected to win a game. So you know, there was never any pressure. There was never like unlike today. I'm sat with two TL supporters last night screaming at the television three 0 down and I just can't understand how to get so excited. Uh, because I think the game's all about it's for fun, all right. You'd want your team to win, but it's not the be all and end all, is it? It's, let's be fair about it. You know, it's it's an end. Footballs that people tend to forget. People's in it. Footballs an entertainment, and you go to be entertained. And I think that's what ended, why I ended up in 1967 watching Queens Park Rangers go through that fantastic cup run. Through, I see every game right up to Wembley because I was following Fulham when Rodney Marsh was playing and uh, I, I loved him as a player at that time and then he moved to Queen's Park Rangers and I followed I followed him more than I did QPR but then but I loved the, I just loved Loftus Road and the way that and the and the great team they had they had a couple of Fulham players they had a fellow called Jim Langley they also had the great um, um, fellow up front, um, one of the Allens, you know, one yeah, of the Allens. Allen. Les, Les Allen, Allen. yeah. Uh, it's tremendous. He was in the, I think, Tottenham double winning team. Yeah, he was. Fant- fantastic old player. Uh, uh, they had Bobby Keecher. I knew Bobby from a kid uh, who was at Fulham. So they, 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 what they pulled off the miracle in 1967, I was even up in Birmingham for the semi final when they beat. Birmingham four one I think in the second leg yeah, and I travelled up with my, my my dad on the on the, you know the supporters bus so I was very much into that and I even when I missed Wembley sixty seven I was there for the Chelsea final but I weren't there for the League Cup final because I had to be at Stamford Bridge because that was our job as apprentices we had to be at the home match but I can remember staying outside the offices and I heard that they were two 0 down and. Uh, and I listened to, you know, the, the final few minutes when they scored the winner outside the main office at Chelsea. And every everybody thought I was happy because Chelsea had scored or something. Uh, uh, but it wasn't. I was, I was, it was, a, I was that day. That was day was fantastic, you know. But I, I, I would love to have been there on that day, especially being 2 0 down and coming back to beat West Brom. And this is the thing with true football fans, you know, you might get bought up. I mean, I was bought up Birmingham City, but I don't class myself as a fan now I like to watch football I like to watch players I go to games to watch players now not to watch a football club understand that sadly lots of them aren't geniuses a player that was genius and was your 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 ultimate hero I'd guess uh, Johnny Haynes and there's a, a lovely story Petula Clark leads us up to our next record Don't Sleep in the Subway I'm guessing Johnny didn't but there is a Johnny Haynes reference to the song isn't there well, it's, um, she was one of my favourite singers of all time, and uh, she used to live that just off the King's Road, uh, only about probably 200 yards from where I am now. And um, 
I know my mother, my mother gave me this information. She used to work in a little bistro in the King's Road when she could go out the house. And, um, and yeah, Johnny, Johnny Haynes used to date Petula Clark, which was very, very hush. I, I can imagine it today, you know, it would be all over the place today. You know, it would be probably the biggest news in the country, you know, Petula Clark. I mean, I've seen her work with Frank Sinatra and seen her on stage with you know, with clips of her and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. And... John, the first £100 a week player in the history of the game, was uh, he was top, top man. And, and I got to know him pretty well. And sadly, after my car accident, he had his car accident, but he never got through his. He sadly died and uh, it was tragic uh, because I was just getting to, to know John very well. And he come down for one of my functions from Edinburgh, put himself out to come down because I, and then I sent him a book that I wrote where Fulham gonna find the next Johnny Haynes and he said you can't publish that because Chelsea Chelsea fans are, uh, shoot you, you know you can't write that because he was such a modest man, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, a great great man who today would be. I don't think he would play in England today, John. Yeah, it was it, it probably epitomised that you know, pretty much like Jack. You know, he played for he played for a team who who were just he was on a different planet from them. Uh, and I, I suppose people in Southampton say like, like Matt Letizia was like that. You know, a big fish in a, a small bowl. But uh, Johnny just jo- Johnny was just in love with a football club, and uh, the same with Jack. Is with his club, so you know we've we've got a, a like for like there, and also Tosh Chamberlain as well, because apparently the only reason Johnny signed because he's his best mate Tosh Chamberlain was playing for Fulham at the time. Well, they, yeah, they they they, they had this this wonderful friendship, and uh, that was that was the one that was where the 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 joke came from, wasn't it? That that was where it all started with uh, Johnny Haynes and Tosh Chamberlain when. When he went in and got his hundred pound a week, and um, it was all, all all over the press and all that, and uh, and Tosh went in to see him, and Johnny ain't said him, "No, I wouldn't go in." Tosh, he said, "Hey, you ain't gonna get nowhere near like that, you, you know. You just stick as you are." And uh, he went in, and he says, "And I think it was Tommy Trinder who was who was in charge," and he said. You know, he says he's getting hundred pound a week, in and uh, he says, well, he's getting hundred pound a week in 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 the summer, and he's getting seventy pound a week in the winter. He said, well, the, which is out of season, and uh, and he said, I'm getting thirty thirty pound a week, and fifteen pound a week out of season, and he said, well, he said you're not as good as Johnny Ains, are you? He said, oh well, I am out of season. <laughs> and that was where that joke came from. So they kind of boosted that joke and put it into a different category. But that's where it came from. Tosh uh, went in claiming more money, but uh, you know he he just you know he, I I I don't know what Tosh would have done without Johnny Haynes because Johnny Haynes used to put a ball with a laces just the right way for him. You know, he was one of. Well, probably arguably the best passer of ball that, that England have ever seen, wasn't he? Johnny Ains, the maestro. He, well, he was even more than that, Paul. Mm. He was even more. I remember the game when they beat Scotland 9-3 when uh, they 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 ripped them apart and Johnny was a midfield player. I think Johnny scored two or three and made three or four or whatever. He was just an outstanding... You know, in a, a team of Jimmy Greaves and, you know, they... 
um, they were probably the two best players in that London could boast at that time. And good mates as well. And, and you're right, I think Johnny did go and live up there in Scotland and Jimmy gave him a bit of grief, didn't he? Because there was, there was always the needle between England and Scotland. I don't think Greavesy would have gone and lived up there in, in Jockland, would he? He always well, used to put the boots in then <laughs> to the old Jockos, especially when he was with uh, Ian St John on that brilliant Saint and Greavesy show. Well, I remember seeing a, a thing on television. He was in the back of a black cab uh, Jimmy Greaves and uh, and the, it, the Scottish lad was driving the cab and he was, he was on the phone to his mate saying I've got Jimmy Greaves in the back we love Jimmy Greaves you know what a player he was and, and Jimmy said don't give me all that he said I've been at Hamden Park and I've seen you like Wembley you don't love me you don't love any of us you know so there was, there was great banter between us all in the, well in the, them in them days and and it continued didn't it you know it was a, it was a, but that was what was fantastic about the game in those days because you know without the scottish uh Harley wouldn't exist yeah we we had you know the best managers and all the best managers were scottish and and the best players were scottish so the, and the only one that didn't come down when he should have come down because Rangers and Celtic were so big at that time with Jim Baxter. If Jim Baxter would have come down when he was 21, 22, we would have seen another genius, you know. Sadly, he come down towards the end of his career and he come down to uh, Sunderland and then uh, Nottingham Forest and, and he wasn't in the best of well, probably conditions no. and form, was he? we his well, I, I see him, behind him. I'd see him play at Fulham for Nottingham Forest and it was a sad sight. Yeah. It was a sad sight, uh, and uh, it was it's something that always stuck in my mind when I went back to Stoke. And uh, although I, uh, you know, I wasn't, I got them out, I helped get them out of trouble, the relegation. But I, it was, I was always aware that, you know, when to hang my boots up, um, because people, you don't want to be remembered, uh, you know. And I, I can remember going to the Queens Park Rangers when I nearly signed for them when I left Chelsea and. I was at the game. To listen to the rest of this podcast, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash SRB Media or just follow the links in the description. Thank you.